For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello, everyone. How are you all doing? I've been saving this interview up for the right moment, and here it is. Because Friday, May 22nd, is the International Day for Biological Diversity. But actually, this whole year was meant to be about that. The World Economic Forum named 2020 the Year for Nature Action, and it was supposed to culminate in this big conference about the UN Convention on Biological Diversity, which was supposed to happen in October in Kunming in China. Our guest is Helen Crowley, who's an advisor to the World Economic Forum, but she also works for Caring, where she heads up sustainable sourcing innovation and works with brands like Gucci, Saint Laurent and Balenciaga. Now, Helen lives in France, but as you'll hear, she's an Aussie and she's got a PhD in zoology. We recorded it in London. It was late January the night before a panel discussion we were both part of at The Sustainable Angle, which we didn't know at the time was going to be one of the last big fashion events in London before the shutdowns put everything on pause. Now, I asked Helen at that time about this big year for nature and the UN conference. And remember, we didn't know that it would get postponed, but she told me it's long term anyway. All the countries get together who have signed the convention, so there's more than 190 that have signed the Convention on Biological Diversity, and they decide on what the rules of the game are. What are the rules that we're going to adhere to to make sure we're going to stop losing biodiversity and we're going to start restoring it wherever we can and however we can? What are the targets we're going to set and what are the rules? And that's really important to have that. There is also things that companies need to do and so on to fit in that sort of societal framework this is what we need to do, this is what countries have agreed to do, let's then figure out how we're going to do it. So it's a big year, but let's just not say it's it's not just this year, this is just a launching year. And don't see it as a daunting thing, see it as an adventure. I heard someone say at Davos, I had a lot of fantastic things at Davos, and one of them was, we tend to overestimate what we can do in a year, but underestimate what we can do in a decade. Like Helen says, this is a long game. And you know what? The stakes couldn't be higher. One million animal and plant species are now threatened with extinction. So we obviously need to change our ways. But there is good news because we have the tools. There's a map for that. Helen reckons regenerative agriculture is a good place to start. Now, if you like this episode... I might suggest that you go back and take a listen afterwards to number 73, which is with Claire Bergkamp from Stella McCartney. And finally, before we dive in, I've got a new website. I'd love you to check out all our new content and magazine at thewardrobecrisis.com. Helen, welcome to the Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Hi, thank you. Great to be here. I love that you have made time for this. You've just stepped off a train. Of course. We're going to talk about one of the most important issues facing us, so I can always make time for that. Thanks, Claire. We're going to be talking about a few concepts here that I think it would be helpful to define up front, and I want to start with biodiversity. The World Economic Forum calls it the most fundamental building block of nature and defines it as the variability and abundance of living organisms and their habitats. Okay, Helen, your turn. 
When we talk about ecosystems, what do we mean? Okay, so ecosystems, it's like a community of living organisms. It's a community of bugs and birds and trees living in a particular environment. So it's an ecosystem, basically, the interaction of those things living with the place they live in. So you can have a lake ecosystem or a mountainside ecosystem, and it's all the animals and the plants that are living in that community and interacting together. Perfect. Now a big one. But what do we mean when we talk about regenerative agriculture? Oh, so regenerative agriculture, it's, it's about the practices that farmers do in the way they grow things or the way they graze animals, where instead of destroying the soil structure and the, the life that is all around in the plants and so on, they've got a practice where they regenerate it. So basically they use less chemicals and they use practices that make sure that the soil, all the microbes living in the soil come back, that the plant diversity comes back and that the whole system becomes a much more of a sort of natural system. But you can still farm it. But also positive rather than just it's less It's all very harm. positive. It's, it's not about just doing less bad. It's about doing more good. And that's where regenerative is different to just restore or restorative, which is a nice word. We like being restored ourselves. But it sort of implies you're sort of going back to some baseline, whereas regenerative is oh, yeah. really like, it's like rejuvenation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're getting younger or you're going back to a better place, you know. Okay, one more, and it is natural capital. Now, this was a phrase I'd not no, really come across. No, natural capital is a relatively new phrase and it's it's a lot of these words okay we do use them interrelated with biodiversity and nature but natural capital was a way of articulating and saying to everybody look nature out there creates services for us biodiversity all those living bits of nature create services for us and they're worth something but then that's another one of these phrases ecosystem Uh, services okay so look at it like this let's let's go back to basics biodiversity is everything living on the earth. It's the species and the ecosystems, all the living bit. It's like the living skin on the bones of the earth. Mm. Nature is like the bones and the living bits. But without biodiversity, a mountain is just a pile of rocks. Without biodiversity, soil is just dirt. So biodiversity, the living bits, right? And that's the stock that we need to have in this world to depend on. But this is really interesting because when we start to use the language that's familiar to us from commerce, from business, from economics, and then put that with nature, it can make us feel a bit icky. And I'm asking you this because (laughs) I heard you give this talk in 2014 and you admitted that when you first heard that phrase, natural capital, you did feel slightly uncomfortable. As a zoologist, you asked yourself, does it take us away from the emotional connection of a word like biodiversity? But you came around. I've come around because I think we need every single... I was going to say tools, but it's not really tools. I think we just need every way of communicating to people. I mean, everyone's tribal. Everyone comes from different backgrounds and they have different ways of communicating. So we have to learn to communicate with different people using different translations to say, this is why nature is important. So the natural capital, the idea that there's a value in there, it's a capital that we need to respect, an asset, is a way of talking to a community out there, the CFOs, for example. Business. Business. The economic system in which we live in hasn't quite shifted enough yet to really integrate those other values. We're getting there. There's a lot of discussion about business with a purpose and creating value more than financial value. Anyway, back to your definition. The point is we use these different words and the scientists use biodiversity, but other people use nature. 
you know, we talk about natural capital when we're talking about, look, you've got to understand there's a value, an inherent value as well as a value created for society by nature. And, and But you think of it in stocks and flows mm. if you want, if that's how your brain works. Think of it as a living skin across the bones of the earth if you want to think mm. of it like that. Think of it as all those things that we require to be functioning to give us the air we breathe and the water we drink. We're about to talk tomorrow at an event called Sustainable Angle. It's actually Future Fabrics Expo in London, and we're going to be talking about regenerative agriculture. And one of the things I was going to start by saying to you is this stuff is serious stuff. It's not fluffy. Oh, oh I'm go. so sorry. It's not a gin and tonic. It's just uh, water. Sorry. This stuff is serious stuff. It's not fluffy. It's not a nice to have. It's not hugs of trees. This is actually life and death. No, it's absolutely life and death. And we've got, uh, we really are at this point where we have really taken nature for granted and not valued it enough that we've got a climate crisis and a nature crisis at the same Mm. time. And those two are inextricably linked. And the solutions are for them are both inextricably linked, like they're so interconnected. So we're at this point, they're calling it the super year for biodiversity, the beginning of the decade of delivery, because we have 10 years to turn up the biodiversity curve. So they talk about the curve of biodiversity loss. We've got to inflect that curve so we're not losing, but we're restoring biodiversity. And at the same time, we've got to slow the climate curve of greenhouse gases. Okay, we're going to get deep into this, but I just want to briefly touch on the fashion connection up front. Obviously, you've come from fashion. We're going to talk about that. But why you mentioned links. What is the link between fashion and these things, biodiversity, the pressures on ecosystems, and what broadly is fashion doing about it? Everyone depends on it. Let's get that clear for the moment, whether you're an individual, a company, a society, a community, we all depend on on living nature. Business depends on it for many, many reasons, because they use it to grow things that they sell in their business, or they use it, they source things. And fashion is surprisingly really dependent on nature because it's an agricultural base. We're growing. We're growing our raw materials. Or we might be seeking our raw materials from the wild. Or we might be mining our raw materials and having an impact using mined resources, but also having an impact on the natural world. Or we might be using forests for our clothes, for our rayon and viscose. We are just so fundamentally tied to nature and nature's processes that it is actually a little surprising for everybody when they start thinking about that because it's way, way up the Mm. supply chain. But now they're starting to think about it. Now, I asked you what fashion's doing about it. It's too big a question to answer super quickly. But just broadly, is fashion becoming more engaged with these conversations around protecting nature and actually looking at regeneration as opposed to just not polluting, for example? Yeah, doing uh, more good and not just less bad. Absolutely. And I can say that categorically and happily and optimistically that I've seen a change in in the way fashion is looking at its supply chains and its impact towards understanding how it relates to nature because of the fashion pact, because of the commitment that was made by about 60 CEOs representing nearly 260 brands, I think now. So the fashion pact is about making commitments to oceans, climate and biodiversity, explicitly biodiversity. Actually stating it. Actually stating it and saying, we're going to do something about this as an industry, collectively, but as individual companies as well. Now, I just want to ask you about caring. I'm going to come back to that, but... Yeah, sure. When we think about the luxury sector in fashion and we think about leaders who've been really pushing 
action on biodiversity and on climate and mm. all, all of these things. I think caring is front of mind, certainly mm. is for me. Your background in fashion is caring. You joined them in 2011, is that right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you had this crazy job title, Conservation and Ecosystem Ecos- Services Specialist. I mean, can we just actually take a moment? Yeah, to- it was... Uh, well, that was what attracted me to the job was the title because I thought I would, was working in the NGO world, so the non-profit, I was working for a conservation organisation and I had been working in that field for 20-odd years and I hadn't even thought of going over to sort of the, going over, look at how yeah. I say, going over to the other the side, side, to the corporate <laughs> side. Um, but I was intrigued by the way how supply chains were having an impact on all the work that I had been doing in Africa and Madagascar. So I was sort of intrigued about companies and their sustainability initiatives and in, as part of my sort of uh, trying to understand and discover what companies were doing I came across this job advertisement uh, for PPR it was called PPR then oh, yeah, Pinot Printemps Redoute and I thought wow if someone's hiring a conservation and ecosystem service especially if they are really serious about ask if they made sustainability well, I feel like I was made for the job or the other way around. But, yeah, they uh, they did want someone with the background that I had. So it turned out to be a great fit and a really exciting eight years working with them. They've, Caring has really taken a lead and very deeply committed to making a difference. So that's been exciting. And then as my job sort of evolved... But during the eight years, um, and I have now have another title that no one yes. really understands, called a Head of Sustainable Sourcing Innovation. And everyone goes, oh, wow, from what? <laughs> but anyway, it's basically about supply chains and sourcing. And it's basically how do we make sure that we not only reduce our impact, but we contribute back in some way. How do we source our wool better? How do we source our leather better? What do we do about our gold and where that comes from? How can we make sure that all of that really is not creating a net negative? Interesting um, that you mentioned gold. For listeners who aren't aware, and we'll share some links, Caring is obviously a luxury group that has lots of brands under its umbrella. And it's not just fashion and luxury, it's also jewellery. Yep. Name some brands. So the biggest one is Gucci, um, but we also have Saint Laurent, Balenciaga, Alexander McQueen, Brioni, which I love. Not many people know Brioni, the suits, but lovely, classy materials. And then we have some jewellery brands like Pomelato, which is just lovely, Boucheron, and there's some watch brands as well. So, yeah, there's quite a... What are your earrings? What are my earrings? Gucci earrings. They've got these little funky... Because I love wearing animal things, so he has little funky cat. They're good. Cat All right, spaces. but right now you're not wearing your caring hat. You're on sabbatical. Yeah. You've got a fellowship with an NGO called Conservation International and you're also advising the World Economic Forum. Yeah. Talk to us about that. So what are you doing for Conservation International? So I'm really lucky that I'm, I was, I'm able to take this sabbatical and I took it for a refresh a rethink after eight years. Okay, we're heading into this incredible time where we've got to make a real difference. I need to know more. I need to learn more and to come oh God, back. God, you know everything already. <laughs> <laughs> You're like no, the person that you've been on top of my list of want no, to talk to. <laughs> thank you. That's really sweet. No, I don't. There's a lot I don't know. And there's a lot of, there's a lot that's happened in other sectors, you know, in the food sector about supply chains that I want to learn from. And Conservation International I've known for many years and they offered me a fellowship for a year to work with them to sort of help bring some science to business and business to science and that sounds nerdy it's not meant to be nerdy it's meant to be can we take all that sort of 
knowledge and tools and data and information that's sort of in that fantastic academic conservation world and craft it into something that's really usable and fit for purpose for business and particularly for fashion to say, okay, I want to protect biodiversity. I want to save biodiversity in my supply chains. How do I do it? Oh, here's the tool. Here's the what you need to use. So that's sort of what I want to spend in this year doing. There's obviously an increasing hunger from business across the board for collaborations with science and for the best practice, knowledge sharing, all the rest of it. I'm thinking about Davos. Everyone's talking about this stuff. This is the first time I went to Davos. We could do a whole podcast on Davos. You'll have to come next year. It is a wild place. It is just bizarre and exciting and fascinating and challenging and in this beautiful little sort of alpine resort town. But I came out of it actually feeling really positive because in the bit of Davos that I was in, which wasn't the main event, it was like the Fringe Festival of Davos. There was <laughs> like a, the Edinburgh Comedy it was, Festival. That's what I kept thinking about, the Fringe, because um, there, there was all sorts of things going on. It was very dynamic. But I was in an even smaller part of the Fringe Festival around nature issues. But but it was resonating beyond that small group, well, I'm going to say small, important vocal group of of companies, of NGOs, of civil society leaders talking about the importance of, of nature and taking that into consideration. But more broadly, that was resonating and talking about climate and stakeholder value and shareholder value and redefining the way business is done. Ellen, what, what? even is Davos? What is Davos? I mean, I know. But okay. just, maybe you don't know. No, no, it's Not true. everyone knows. I know because I've researched it. But what actually is it? It's this yeah. crazy meeting. Donald Trump said this year I watched his address. I was going to say we'll share a link. I'm not even going to share a link. Google it if you care. He said, it's world leaders, the biggest, most important people in the world. Oh, like your Brian Trump in person. <laughs> Okay, sorry, so, listen. Don't turn off. <laughs> it is okay. So what? It's the it's for fifty years. The World Economic Forum has been meeting in this small town in the really hard to get to part of Switzerland. It actually used to be the place in the nineteenth and early into the twentieth century where people who were sick would go oh, to recover. It would take, take the air. You know, you'd always hear about that in stories and things. Oh, I'm going to Switzerland to take the air, especially if you had tuberculosis. So it was the famous place to go and and sort of cure or hopefully get cured and then in in the interim it became a ski resort and whatever and then 50 years ago the world economic forum started having meetings there bringing world leaders together corporate leaders together to talk about the state of the world and you can read a lot of critique about i was going to say a lot of people want to say you know people flying there in the learjets to talk about climate change or uh, self-satisfied business leaders patting themselves on the back but a lot of really important things do happen there don't they absolutely especially i guess off stages yep but that's what i say in around it's the networking it's the the fringe it's the other events that are going on and it's not just the corporate leaders um the ceos and the heads of state there are leaders in all sorts of other areas conservation social equity uh shareholder value women's issues there's so much going on at davos this year A couple of important things seemed to be happening. There was a real shift. Climate became really a central part. Risk, the climate change is creating for everybody, particularly a business, but also the fact that we need to act on it quickly. Well, Greta Thunberg is there, giving everyone Totally. I mean, you can't, exactly. So, I mean, everyone, you can't avoid that. So that, and that in therein lies a value of Davos. A lot of people that can make a lot of the solutions happen are there. So let's provide them with Mm. solutions. Let's show them how it's important. But interesting that this 
relatively new in terms of the media agenda focus on biodiversity. Tell us about the World Economic Forum's Nature Action Agenda and this whole idea that 2020 is the year we've got to start really talking about this. And maybe also looking at the balance between let's not only talk about climate, let's also talk about this other side of it, which I guess is related, but it's not just a warming world, it's also species loss, it's also natural habitats under attack. Yeah, so the World Economic Forum has created a a group within the forum, which is based out of Geneva, to work on the new nature agenda. And that's around a couple of different initiatives. The World Economic Forum is really good at convening. And I mean that, I, I mean that it's a very seriously important thing. We have to bring people together to figure out how we can work together to solve these big gnarly issues like climate and biodiversity loss. It's not just for one section of society or business or everything that can solve it. It's everybody. So so they're fantastic at bringing people together of all backgrounds. So, And they've been doing that through different ways. One of them is through the Global Champions, which is bringing leaders of NGOs and corporate. And then they're writing reports, really collations of all the information we know about why is nature important to us, to our society, to business Mm. what are the risks we're facing and what are we can we do about it and that's sort of some of just some of the work they're doing and that's some of the work I'm helping them with do you know Laura Tuck yes at the World Bank Yeah, yeah so she is the World Bank's vice president I think you were talking at this event. I watched a YouTube clip of her introducing some speakers at an event last year. I think it was in October in, in Washington at the World Bank HQ. She said, and she was quoting a report that we're going to get into, basically, or paraphrasing it, she said, nature is the foundation for health and economies, the source of our food and water and medicine, protection against weather and the air that we breathe, everything. If we don't take care of our biosphere, we can't provide any of those things. That's about it. It's the whole shebang. It's the whole shebang and we've been taking it for granted because the air's just there and the water's just there. And although in the last year, given everything that's happened, particularly in our country, I think people are taking it less for granted because it's just not, it's starting to not be there anymore. And the last 30 years has seen such a loss of nature. And that's what the, some of the big reports that came out last year, particularly the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, IPES. Um, which sounds is a real mouthful, but here's the problem and this is where we're at and it's not good. Okay, Helen, I'm confessing to you. When I was researching this interview, I came across IPBES. I didn't even know what it was. Now, yeah. I spent my whole time reading the IPCC reports. I think I know about climate. I've written a book about climate action. I think I'm well informed. I've never heard of this thing. So the IPBES was established in 2010 so we've had these meetings now. The 15th one's going to happen in China in October. Mm-hmm. And they put out these reports that are just as important as the IPCC reports. Scientists coming together to report on what's happening with nature. Why don't we know about it? Yeah. I mean, well, am I just completely yeah. stupid or do people no, not No, no, you're not stupid. No, I think it's just all been very sort of hidden and it's been in the community of conservation and academic, the academic conservation worlds that have been focusing more on. But I don't think anymore. I think last year after the reports come out, it's got huge coverage. The Global Assessment Report, the most recent one, which yeah. came out, I think, was it May and then again? 2019, right. yeah, yeah. Headlines from that, yeah. I think everyone would have read, even if they didn't understand the origins were the IPBES, but I mean, uh, the scale of species loss, for example. Totally. And it's sort of even, even though I knew about it, I still was shocked when I read some of the report because it's in the, in the time that I have been a conservation biologist, we have lost this, you know, so much. And 
it can be devastating when you dwell on it too much when you think of the species and that have gone that will never come back but what we've got to all do now is just sort of take a breath and think okay we've got this chance now as society as humanity we've got the knowledge we've got the tools to fix it we've got a lot of solutions let's like take that on and it's probably one of our greatest challenges that we've if not the greatest challenge we've ever faced as a society and it's going to be hard for us all to sort of pull together on it because we haven't really had to do that before it's also really upsetting I mean you touched on that without wanting to give way to despair but listeners are going to have heard that you're an Aussie yeah right now where we come from where I live that's my adopted home and where you come from the whole place is on fire. We've got reports seemingly daily, perhaps they're not daily, but it feels like that. The echidnas are on the way out. The koalas could be on the way out. We're not even talking about the little things that are yes. less Instagram worthy. It's really upsetting, isn't it? It is. And I think it? we need to... How do I do it? Yeah. I, find, um, I find I have to give myself a moment to mourn, mourn what we've lost for the people and for nature, particularly that some of the animals that have gone I think you have to allow yourself that I think it's a we're living in traumatic intense times and I think we need to respect that that has an emotional toll on everyone obviously on the people that are right in the middle of it but then you've got to say okay what are we going to do about it because what can I do it seems so overwhelming but what can we do is it the way I choose my food the way I choose my clothes the way I choose my travel the where I live what is it the bet that you can do and I think what you're doing is so critical because the first piece of that is for to be informed everyone should be informed uh, and I know it's hard because you're getting information coming at you from all directions but that's what your podcast is so great because you want to be informed by the right things obviously um, but, but people you... also not necessarily want are willing to or have time to or the energy to and I speak for myself as well wade through the big oh, sure. dusty that's not scientific what I mean. reports yeah, I don't mean so about being informed be, yeah, yeah but I mean it, it can just... be hard to find the, yeah, the information yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot there's, mm. a, there's a lot of information but I'm just saying that's a good first step yeah. and then make a decision about what are you going to do Let's talk about what you do. Um, coming back to Australia, what did you study I in studied, the University of Tasmania? I, well, I did my undergrad in, in the Ta- University of Tasmania. So I did in um, in science. So I did a Bachelor of Science degree with honours, and then I went. But then to you studied zoology or ecology. Zoology, yeah. And at then ANU, I went. Yeah, right? I did that, and then I did um, a, PhD. a PhD. Yeah, yeah at the Australian National University, and I actually studied. <laughs> I sort of laugh because it's like my the title of my thesis was the lactational energetics of two species of antichinus there's <laughs> academia for you it was and i thought it best was hard to do right it was like what um, even is an anti what an antichinus is a small it, it looks like a shrew but it's called a marsupial mouse but it's like a, it looks like a shrew it is a marsupial has a little pouch and basically the females have different numbers of young in different environments the same species so i was looking at why is that so <laughs> i'm just like phds is so specific i they went are. to university with someone who studied did one medieval poem for her PhD. Oh my and I'm God. like, how many years? Just one poem. Come on. Can't remember which one it was. Like, However, you, yeah. why so specific, well, Ellen? You've got, I mean, that's what it's a doctor of philosophy. You take a question and you figure something out and you do go in depth. And it's a privilege. I mean, it's fantastic to be able to spend three to four years researching something and, and really creating an argument of what why you think some this animal is doing what it's doing or 
And I, I look back on it now. At the time, sometimes I would think, oh, gosh, really, why am I doing this? But it trains you to think yeah. um, critically and it trains you to dig deep and understand things and be able to present them in, in a PhD. It's in a very science-based way. But ever since I've been trying to learn to present it in less sciencey and more easy-to-understand way. But the reason, just I'm joking aside, I mean, one of the reasons I decided on a PhD topic was it got me out in the bush, the field, okay, all amazing. the time, yeah. everywhere. And that's what I wanted. I just wanted to be out in the field, out with animals, surrounded by nature. And my PhD was a very field-based topic. So that was great. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Tasmania. And what sort of kid were you? Were you an outdoorsy, animal-obsessed kid? I guess I was. My dad loves animals. Oh, yeah, I was animal-obsessed, and I got it probably from my dad. And all I ever wanted to do was be a wildlife biologist and just save animals. And I had a dream of going to Africa and driving my four-wheel drive around, you know, saving lions or saving some fabulous animal and that's all I ever imagined I wanted to do so sometimes when I think people say oh well you know you know all about sustainable fashion and you work for a luxury fashion company I'm going wow yeah (laughs) (laughs) but you know it's a means it's an important means to an end and the end is still the same of what I've always tried to do which is conservation of biodiversity before fashion though you went to New York what took you to New York to work with was it wildlife Wildlife conservation Conservation? society so I actually lived in Madagascar for many years oh you mentioned that before yeah and that working for wildlife I was running the wildlife conservation society program well actually to be fair when I first finished my PhD that academic PhD I thought well that's enough for academia for me (laughs) I'm going to go to the field like I always wanted to and I ended up in Madagascar how amazing um, which was partly because I read Jerry Darrell books I don't know if you've ever read any Gerald Darrell books. So I spent some time at his zoo when I was doing that, you know, traveling around Europe for a year. And I ended up spending some time at Gerald Darrell Zoo and I fell in love with lemurs. And I was going to say, Madagascar, I mean, I'm no expert, you tell us, but obviously famous for its biodiversity. Biodiversity, yeah. It's one of the most, yeah, totally, yeah. It's it's the fourth largest island in the world and almost everything on that island, it's a bit like Australia, but we don't call Australia an island so much and a continent, but Madagascar, it's separated from Africa and Gondwana land, like about, I think it's about 110 million years ago. So that's a long time ago. And so a lot of things evolved on this island island like Australia a lot of things evolved there that didn't evolve in other parts of the world and so you get lemurs which are these fantastic primates that sort of sometimes look like some species look like cats crossed with monkeys sometimes they some just look completely wild and unique and they leap around on their back feet the shifak and they look like ballet dancers mm-hmm. you get ten racks which are these spiny little hedgehoggy actually look a little bit like uh, antichinus I did my PhD you've got lots of endemic birds that you know endemic means it's only occurs there so it's really um, it's called a hotspot, a biodiversity hotspot. So it was a good place to go for someone like me. So I spent many years there. And then when I had small children, we and with my, my husband and my family, we moved to the States and I worked for Wildlife Conservation Society there for a few years. And then from there went to Paris to work for Caring. But now you don't live in Paris. Where do you live in the Dordogne? I live yeah, in my sabbatical. I decided to change up my life completely for a year. So I live in the country in the southwest of France. What's in it a like? big old it's beautiful. And it you know, I didn't realise again it's until I did it that it was about this hankering to be surrounded by nature. 
And it's a different sort of nature. I mean, it's not wilderness. But just uh, away from it, the concrete and away from away, the sidewalk. The air is beautiful. I went, my neighbour knocked on my door the other day and asked me if I wanted to go and pick mushrooms in the forest around oh, yeah. the corner. There's something, I don't know if I'm wrong, but I feel like the French have more of a connection with the food and the yeah. nature and food than perhaps we do. There's no doubt. And, and, you know, a lot of people there in the country are still... They have jobs, but they're living a lot off the land. I mean, they can't live completely off the land, some of them, but they're very careful about how they use their natural resources and so on. So especially where I am, it's famous for its truffles. Oh, yeah, of course. So that's lovely. But I also have, I think, because of the work I've done with caring over the last eight years, I've spent a lot of time with farmers, whether they're cashmere herders or wool growers in Australia or farmers in South Africa that are farming mohair or sheep for leather and meat and so on. And I have a really huge respect for them and an understanding like I never did before about how they have to balance the risks and the challenges and how it's hard for them to transition to regenerative systems. It's hard for them to make these changes. But, you know, it's a it's a really rewarding group of people to work with and help support. And um, so I, I enjoy, I really enjoy that farming side of things now in a way I never thought I would. Just let's stick with caring for a moment there. I wonder if you might share with us a bit about the environmental profit and loss methodology that caring introduced in when, like yeah, ages two, ago? Yeah, 2010, 2011. It came across from Puma, which was one of the PPR caring brands, and Jochen Zeitz, who was the CEO of Puma, who basically had had a sort of an epiphany himself, realising that he was very successful at business, but he loved nature. And he spent a lot of time in Africa and was, well, hang on a minute, what am I doing about this nature bed? And is that, it's not integrated into any of my decision making. So he brought that to Francois-Henri Pinot, who's the chairman and CEO of Caring, and said, look, let's do this sort of accounting methodology. It sounds sort of nerdy, but that will help look at what our environmental footprint is. And basically that's what an EPNL is. But it's it's again back to what we're talking about, about language and words. It's framed as an environment profit and loss so that it fits in a business context and that CEOs and CFOs will say, pay attention because they go, oh, it's a profit and loss. Do I need to know about that? Yeah. Oh, it's an environment one. Yeah, but, you do. Oh, okay. Let, and you do. So it was clever. So there'd been no obvious systems in place broadly for companies, brands, designers, sourcing people, anyone to really look at exactly what those impacts might be across what I mean, everything It's carbon, it's water. Yeah, we use six indicators. So it's how much land you use and the impact you have on your land, how much how much greenhouse gases are emitted, water is used, water pollution, air pollution and solid waste. So six across now the the thing that makes the EPNL so important is not just that it's trying to cover a suite of indicators that help us understand our impact and dependencies on natural capital or nature or the environment, but also it's across our entire supply chain. So it's not just about your shops and it's not just about your manufacturing facilities. It's your entire supply chain. Right back to the farm. And that right back to the farm. And even though you don't own that as a company, but you source from it. And that's what makes it really interesting because it shows that most of your footprint, most of your impact is at the farm or at the forest or at the mine. It's so interesting and regular listeners of this podcast will know that often that is an excuse that brands everywhere use. Oh, well, sorry, we don't own it. 
So even when we're looking, for example, at trying to reduce carbon impacts, people always say, well, look, we've gone to renewable energy in our headquarters and in our distribution centres. I'm thinking about Zara. Mm. What about the rest of it? I mean, it can't just be your shops. It can't yeah. just be the bit you own. If you don't own your factories, you can't pass the buck. Yeah, I mean, but it's hard. Yeah, it is. Right? It's, it's hard. None of this is easy, but that's okay. That's our challenge. <laughs> I mean, if it was easy, we'd all probably be doing it. Yeah, I think there is a recognition back to one of the questions you asked earlier about, you know, well, what is fashion doing? I, I actually do think there is much more of an awareness of the supply chain issues and of the fact that you can't say anymore, I don't know where it comes from. I mean, you can say it, but people are still not going to take you seriously because there's so many ways you can trace and you can um, build transparency. It takes time. It is not easy with global supply chains, but there are ways of doing it. And I think when you talk about climate and the greenhouse gas protocol, which is a way of defining, you know, what parts of your business you need to look at for your climate impacts. You have different scopes, scope one, scope two, scope three, and scope three is basically supply chain. So when a lot of people have been focusing on their immediate operations, but they're now moving to that right, broader first scope. Step. So there's already a precedent there that companies are realising, oh, we're going to have to start looking at that supply chain impact. Okay, I want us to close on regenerative agriculture, the opportunity, and why it's so exciting. It's become this buzzword. Yeah, we've all got to, we, we do have to look at the glass half full and be optimists. We have to. That is a really important mind shift that we have to have. And we talked about you can mourn for a bit, but then we've got to switch it around. And I think regenerative approaches, uh, they seem like magic. Because it's like, seems to be win, 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 win. And it really is. It's like, if you can make that transition, um, regenerative agriculture is just one of those fabulous solutions that you can get excited about and say, oh gosh, we've got something here. Mm. And it is about restoring, it's basically about restoring the soils and the plants and the, the system there that was there before. On the, particularly on grasslands, that would, and it basically sucks all this CO2 out of the atmosphere. We have to transition from our old way of doing things to a regenerative, restorative approaches with everything. If you let nature do its stuff, it's a powerful, powerful force. She can heal herself really well too. So if you stop putting chemicals, synthetic chemicals, pesticides, you stop killing all that living that stuff that's living in the soil that makes it soil and not dirt, stop killing that. Let it grow. Let the plants grow because with plants, the roots nourish the little bacteria and everything in the soil. Think of it as an adventure. Beautiful. And it's, we've got a big adventure ahead of us. It's been an adventure talking to you. Helen. Thank you Thank so you very much, much for you. sharing your insights. Now it's getting hard. My parents feel that this is a Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis, so I'd love your help with that. Because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. 
Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you, because I love you.